June 24, 1947, one man witnesses nine disc-shaped objects streaking across the sky, faster than any terrestrial aircraft. The term flying saucers and the modern UFO era were born. It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and... Agent Anderson. Come along this week for one of the classics, the sighting of Kenneth Arnold. This is a really good sighting. It's uh, one of the classics, like I said in the introduction. This is where we get the term flying saucers from. Yeah, it's a legendary case. First, I'll start off with Arnold's statement. This is the statement he gave to the military, and it can be found in the Blue Book files. It's a little different than some of the stuff he said to like news outlets and stuff. And I think it's a little different because when you're being interviewed on the spot and you're being asked questions you didn't necessarily expect, your answers might vary a little bit and you might not be thinking all that carefully or clearly. But this is a written statement that he sat down and he took his time to compose it. So it's probably going to be a little more carefully thought out than some of his other newspaper interviews or things like that, especially because the newspapers uh, misquoted him. You can go through and see where they misquoted him. Um, You can see the source information that they got it from, like on the newswire, and you can see the newspaper's interpretation. And that's pretty typical. Most cases I find the newspapers tend to exaggerate things or even make things up entirely to kind of sensationalize it. So that's that's why I'm going with this statement, even though it's it's a little on the long side. But all right, here we go. The following story of what I observed over the Cascade Mountains, as impossible as it may seem, is positively true. I never asked nor wanted any notoriety for just accidentally being in the right spot at the right time to observe what I did. The reported something that I know any pilot would have reported. Oh, I reported. Edit. I reported something that I know any pilot would have reported. I don't think that in any way my observation was due to any sensitivity of eyesight or judgment than what is considered normal for any pilot. On June 24th, Tuesday, 1947, I had finished my work for the Central Air Service at Chahalas, Washington. And at about two o'clock, I took off from Chahalas, Washington Airport with the intention of going to Yakima, Washington. My trip was delayed for an hour to search for a large marine transport that supposedly went down near or around the southwest side of Mount Rainier in the state of Washington and, to date, has never been found. I flew directly toward Mount Rainier after reaching an altitude of about 9,500 feet, which is the approximate elevation of the high plateau from which Mount Rainier rises. I had made one sweep of this high plateau to the westward, searching all of the various ridges for this marine ship, and flew to the west, down and near the ridge side of the canyon, where Ashford, Washington is located. Unable to see anything that looked like the lost ship, I made a 360-degree turn to the right, and above the little city of Mineral, started again toward Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to an altitude of approximately 9,200 feet. The air was so smooth that day that it was a real pleasure flying and, as most pilots do when the air is smooth and they are flying at a higher altitude, I trimmed out my airplane in the direction of Yakima, Washington, 
which was almost directly east of my position and simply sat in my plane observing the sky and the terrain. There was a DC-4 to the left and to the rear of me approximately 15 miles distance and I should judge at 14,000 foot elevation. The sky and air was clear as crystal. I hadn't flown more than two or three minutes on my course when a bright flash reflected on my airplane. It startled me as I thought I was too close to some other aircraft. I looked every place in the sky and couldn't find where the reflection had come from until I looked to the left and the north of Mount Rainier where I observed a chain of nine peculiar-looking aircraft flying from north to south at approximately 9,500-foot elevation and going, seemingly, in a definite direction of about 170 degrees. They were approaching Mount Rainier very rapidly, and I merely assumed they were jet planes. Anyhow, I discovered that this was where the reflection had come from, as two or three of them every few seconds would dip or change their course slightly, just enough for the sun to strike them at an angle that reflected brightly on my plane. These objects being quite far away, I was unable for a few seconds to make out their shape or their formation. Very shortly they approached Mount Rainier, and I observed their outline against the snow quite plainly. I thought it was very peculiar that I couldn't find their tails, but assumed they were some type of jet plane. I was determined to clock their speed, as I had two definite points I could clock them by. The air was so clear that it was very easy to see objects and determine their approximate shape and size at almost 50 miles that day. I remember distinctly that my sweep second hand on my eight-day clock which is located on my instrument panel, read 1 minute to 3 p.m. as the first object of this formation passed the southern edge of Mount Rainier. I watched these objects with great interest as I had never before observed airplanes flying so close to the mountain tops, flying directly south to southeast down the hog's back of a mountain range. I would estimate their elevation could have varied a thousand feet one way or another, up or down, but they were pretty much on the horizon to me, which would indicate they were near the same elevation as I was. They flew like many times I have observed geese to fly, in a rather diagonal chain-like line, as if they were linked together. They seemed to hold a definite direction but rather swerved in and out of the high mountain peaks. Their speed at the time did not impress me particularly because I knew that our Army and Air Forces had planes that went very fast. What kept bothering me as I watched them flip and flash in the sun right along their path was the fact that I couldn't make out any tail on them, and I am sure that any pilot would justify more than a second look at such a plane. I observed them quite plainly, and I estimate my distance from them, which was almost at right angles, to be between 20 to 25 miles. I knew they must be very large to observe their shape at that distance, even on as clear a day as it was that Tuesday. In fact, I compared a Zeus fastener or cowling tool I had in my pocket with them, holding it up on them and holding it up on the DC-4 that I could observe at quite a distance to my left 
and they seemed smaller than the DC-4, but I should judge their span would have been as wide as the furthest engines on each side of the fuselage of the DC-4. The more I observed these objects, the more upset I became, as I am accustomed and familiar with most all objects flying, whether I am close to the ground or at higher altitudes. I observed the chain of these objects passing another high snow-covered ridge in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, and, as the first one was passing the south crest of this ridge, the last object was entering the northern crest of the ridge. As I was flying in the direction of this particular ridge, I measured it and found it to be approximately five miles, so I could safely assume that the chain of these saucer-like objects were at least five miles long. I could quite accurately determine their pathway due to the fact that there were several high peaks that were a little this side of them, as well as higher peaks on the other side of their pathway. As the last unit of this formation passed the southernmost high snow-covered crest of Mount Adams, I looked at my sweeps secondhand, and it showed that they had traveled the distance in 1 minute and 42 seconds. Even at the time, this timing did not upset me, as I felt confident after I would land there would be some explanation of what I saw. A number of newsmen and experts suggested that I might have been seeing reflections or even a mirage. This I know to be absolutely false, as I observed these objects not only through the glass of my airplane, but turned my airplane sideways where I could open my window and observe them with a completely unobstructed view, without sunglasses. Even though two minutes seems like a very short time to one on the ground, in the air two minutes time a pilot can observe a great many things and anything within his sight of vision probably as many as 50 or 60 times. I continued my search for the marine plane for another 15 or 20 minutes, and while searching for this marine plane, what I had just observed kept going through my mind. I became more disturbed, so after taking a last look at Teton Reservoir, I headed for Yakima. I might add that my complete observation of these objects, which I could even follow by their flashes as they passed Mount Adams, was around two and one-half or three minutes, although by the time they reached Mount Adams, they were out of my range of vision as far as determining shape or form. Of course, when the sun reflected from one or two or three of these units, they appeared to be completely round, but I am making a drawing to the best of my ability, which I am including, as to the shape I observed these objects to be as they passed the snow-covered ridges, as well as Mount Rainier. When these objects were flying approximately straight and level, they were just a black thin line, and when they flipped was the only time I could get a judgment as to their size. These objects were holding an almost constant elevation. They did not seem to be going up or coming down, such as would be the case of rockets or artillery shells. I am convinced in my own mind that they were some type of airplane, even though they didn't conform with the many aspects of the conventional type of planes that I know. Although these objects have been reported by many other observers throughout the United States, there have been six or seven other accounts written by some of these observers that I can truthfully say must have observed the same thing that I did. 
particularly the descriptions of the three Western Airlines employees, the gentleman from Oklahoma City and the locomotive engineer from Illinois, plus Captain Smith and co-pilot Stevens of United Airlines. Some descriptions could not be very accurate, taken from the ground, unless these saucer-like disks were at quite a great height, and there is a possibility that all of the people who observed particular objects could have seen the same thing I did, but it would have been very difficult from the ground to observe these for more than four or five seconds, and there is always the possibility of atmospheric moisture and dust near the ground which could distort one's vision. I have in my possession letters from all over the United States and people who profess that these objects have been observed over other portions of the world, principally Sweden, Bermuda, and California. Yeah, like California is a foreign country, I guess. <laughs> I would have given almost anything that day to have had a movie camera with a telephoto lens, and from now on, I will never be without one. But to continue further with my story, when I landed at Yakima, Washington Airport, I described what I had seen to my very good friend, Al Baxter, who listened patiently and was very courteous, but in a joking way, didn't believe me. I did not accurately measure the distance between these two mountains until I landed at Pendleton, Oregon, that same day, where I told a number of pilot friends of mine what I had observed, and they did not scoff or laugh, but suggested they might be guided missiles or something new. In fact, several former Army pilots informed me that they had been briefed before going into combat overseas that they might see objects of similar shape and design as I described and assured me that I wasn't dreaming or going crazy. I quote Sonny Robinson, a former Army Air Forces pilot who is now operating dusting operations at Pendleton, Oregon. What you observed, I'm convinced, is some type of jet or rocket-propelled ship that is in the process of being tested by our government, or even it could possibly be by some foreign government. Anyhow, the news that I had observed these spread very rapidly, and before the night was over, I was receiving telephone calls from all parts of the world, and to date, I have not received one telephone call or one letter of scoffing or disbelief. The only disbelief that I know of was what was printed in the papers. I look at this whole ordeal as not something funny as some people have made it out to be, to me, it is mighty serious, and since I evidently did observe something that at least Mr. John Doe on the street corner or Pete Andrews on the ranch has never heard about, it is no reason that it does not exist. Even though I openly invited any investigation by the Army and the FBI as to the authenticity of my story or a mental or physical examination as to my capabilities, I have received no interest from these two important protective forces of our country. I will go so far as to assume that any report I gave to the United and Associated Press and over the radio on two different occasions which apparently set the nation buzzing, if our military intelligence was not aware of what I observed, they would be the very first people that I could expect as visitors. I have received lots of requests from people who told me to make a lot of wild guesses I have based what I have written here in this article on positive facts, and as far as guessing what it was I observed, it is just as much a mystery to me as it is to the rest of the world.
Well, all right, there we go. There, there's the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's pretty much wraps it up, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Yeah, you know this is this is a great story here, man. It's it's one of those solid uh, stories from from you know a very important era. You know this is this is uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the end of World War II. You know, 1945, right? Yeah. And and you know it's a it's it's you know after. You know, some people who were flying in World War II had uh, reported uh, the quote-unquote Foo Fighters, right? That was the name of them? Yeah. That they had ex- experience seeing. I think that's that could be what they're – I've, I've heard it said that that's what the, that fellow was talking about, that uh, he had been talking about, uh, you know, his sighting, the uh, the former uh, Air Force pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They told him, you know, he, he's not crazy, you know? Yeah. And I think that actually the Foo Fighters is another really super interesting case that I definitely want to get into sometime that – that's oh, yeah. that's kind of a yeah. weird one. Yeah, that's that's a cool one. Yeah, but yeah, this is this is one you know one of those cases that uh, it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You know, it's one of those early on ones. Um, th- th- you know, I-, I think Kenneth Arnold is is a very uh, important character. He's a special individual because of how credible I think he is and how well respected he was before this even happened. You know, he, he's a, a pretty successful guy, right? He had his own business, you know, that, you know, um, that he started in 1940 called the, uh, the Great Western Fire, Fire Control Company out of, uh, Boise, I think, right? Idaho. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the guy wasn't some crackpot that, you know, wanted, wanted attention that, you know, wanted to just, uh, tell some kind of a grand story, you know, to become popular with the boys or something, you know? Yeah, and if if you pay attention to what he said, he doesn't speculate that it was aliens or anything like that. He uh, originally he said that he thought it was some kind of government test aircraft or something like that. I think he did speculate later on that it might be extraterrestrial, but somebody else said that first. He didn't say that first, and it is a natural conclusion to make under the circumstances. And I, I think if if I'm not mistaken, um, the the famous term flying saucer, which was derived from this case. Uh, I think he had dis- made that description well after the fact too. It, it wasn't in one of the immediate interviews that he gave. Well, what um, what that the flying saucer comes from? Um, he never said that, as far as I can find. Yeah. And there is well, as far as he he never described the vehicles as looking like that, right? Yeah, he did sometimes say that they were saucer like or or that they moved like saucers. But what the quote that was misquoted was that their motion was like a saucer skipping across water, and then. Journalists kind of misquoted this and turned it into flying saucer. Yeah, yeah, he was just he was uh, describing the way that they were flying. Yeah. So a little bit about uh, the marine transport that he was looking for, because he mentions that in the article. And uh, the reason I'm pointing this out a little bit is because I'll get to an alternate theory later on. So the the transport that he mentioned was a marine C forty six, and it crashed in um in a December nineteen forty six. The families of some of the soldiers on board raised $5,000 reward for anybody who could, you know, find information or locate the thing. And in today's money, that's about $60,000. Thanks, Federal Reserve, right? That ain't, that ain't nothing to shake a stick at right there. Yeah. So that's a lot of money. And that's why Arnold and a lot of other people in the area actually were kind of looking for this thing because there was a huge reward. Arnold was already in the area and he figured, well, might as well, you know, take a slight detour for a chance at 60K. Why not? He, he, he also had a lot of experience uh, as a pilot uh, doing these type of searches to begin with as well. 
Yeah, he had, uh, I forget the exact number, but he had something like 9,000 hours of flying and like half of that was doing search and rescue or something. So yeah, he did have a lot of experience doing that stuff. So is, I know that you, you know a little bit more about like aviation and stuff than I do. Is 9,000, is that a ton of hours? Is that a lot of hours or is that like kind of like average for some yeah, of, that's of, a, of his? Yeah, that's a pretty high number of hours. Is it? Okay. That's decent. But um, I hesitate to say that's a hard fact because I didn't write that down. I might be misremembering that, but... Um, okay. I remember that he did have a decent number of hours, a respectable number of hours. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think mm-hmm. that he didn't know how to fly. He was definitely an expert yeah. at what he was doing. He, he wasn't an amateur. And, and you know, um, listening to, you know, uh, that statement that you were reading too from him, you can tell that the guy is a well put together individual. He, you know, he, he has a strong head on his shoulders. He's a smart guy. Yeah. As he's, ex- he's explaining his, uh, you know, experience, uh, he goes, he goes into great detail, you know, and, and yeah. And his story throughout the years had been pretty consistent as far as him retelling his experience, you know, and what he did in, in reaction to his his experience, you know, like trying to calculate the uh, the the speed, you know, yeah, which was you know a, a pretty you know amazing speed, twelve hundred miles an hour or something like that, uh, conservatively is what he estimated, right? Yeah, and that's what really sets this sighting apart from most other sightings. There aren't really that many where the witness took such detailed measurements. So he took uh, he took an angular measurement of the of the craft and compared it to the DC-4, and he took a timed measurement of how fast they were going against landmarks that he could see. And that the time measurement is really important because uh, he saw them pass in front of Mount Rainier and he saw them weave in and out of, of other peaks. So this gives us a minimum and maximum distance that they could have been at. Now there there is a little bit of wiggle room there for how how far away they could have been, but it kind of pins it down to a pretty specific location, and that's very. Yeah, it gives you a, it gives. Oh yeah, uh, I'm sorry. It, it, it gives you a pretty damn good idea, and that's one of the the key details that I love about this story. Yeah. is because those landmarks that we're talking about, those are, are very you know set in stone. <laughs> yeah, you know for sure. We know how far apart those are for sure. So whether the the estimates are off a little bit, I mean. They're going to be, I think, at least they're they're going to be at least in the ballpark. You know what I mean? You give you a, a damn good idea, right? And because most people who see UFOs, they're either in an airplane or on the ground or whatever, they see them against the background of the sky, and there's no reference point. So it could be something that's a hundred feet away. It could be something that's a hundred miles away. That's really big, or it could be closer and smaller. And if there's no reference point, you can't really tell what the distance is and the speeds are. But this is a very special case in that regard, because you can tell. One thing that he said was that they were um, probably about even with him. And so he said they're about on my horizon. So that means they're at the same altitude as me. Um, When you look at the data of the case, it doesn't quite work like that. Uh, There's um, like an astronomical horizon and the geographical horizon. And I guess it would be more along the astronomical horizon. And when you combine that with like the topography of the area, how he said they were basically flying, like hugging the the terrain, like really close to the ground. Um, If you look at the topography and all the data, it looks like they were probably flying a little lower than him, probably about 7,000 feet. And that's, if you just think about how fast these things were going, which you mentioned 1,200. So what happened was he he initially estimated it a little over 1,700 miles per hour, which is really fast. That's like 2.2 times the speed of sound or Mach 2.2 or something. And that is like so ridiculously fast back then that it might as well be like the it's speed of light. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy fast. 
And the fact that it was flying that close to the ground, even nowadays, no pilot in their right mind is going to hug the terrain going two times the speed of sound. It's just, it's mm -hmm. silly. It's not going to happen. Yeah, you, know? you just ought not do it. Yeah, especially in the mountains. Because if you're going that fast, a, mount, a, gu a gust of wind can um, come up off the mountain and just, you'd be like hitting a brick wall at that speed. It's just oh yeah, there's nothing you could do. Well, and and not just like a, a gust of wind or some kind of atmospheric uh, interference. Um, if you have some kind of a, a mechanical failure or you know a com computer glitch in the system, a glitch in the matrix, whatever, uh, there's going to be very very precious few milliseconds probably that you you're going to have to react to whatever's going on. You know, oh, it'd be instantaneous if you're if oh yeah yeah. And uh, you wouldn't even be able to react to the terrain. You'd be going so fast, you wouldn't be able to steer in and out of the terrain. I mean, we just, humans, our brains, I don't think would work that fast. And that's one thing, another thing that makes it interesting. A little bit later, I'll talk about what we had at the time that could go supersonic. But even today, we don't have anything that could fly this fast, this low, at least not that's piloted by a person, maybe some kind of drone. But you run into the problem of, um, of resistance, of air resistance. So I, in a previous episode, I did a mind boggle of the SR-71. And that thing, even flying at altitude that's so high up, there's basically no air, the skin of the airplane would basically get red hot and it would expand. And that's that's almost in space. There's so much friction going Mach 2. At the ground going Mach 2, we, we still don't have anything that I'm aware of to this day that could fly that fast at that altitude and, and match the characteristics of these things. And it's not just the friction on the body too. It's the it's the the you know the the amount of uh, intake that's going into the the engine as well. You know, a, right. a jet engine. I mean, obviously there, there's many different types of, of engine power plants, but if it's a, a type of engine that that needs to intake lots of air or what have you for combustion, then you can only do so much according to whatever the design is. You know, and obviously in lower altitude, that's the atmosphere is much thicker, so there's a lot more to deal with with, with the regards regards to friction. You know, right. And furthermore, he described not only Arnold, but other witnesses also described that when they're flying, they appeared to flip around erratically as they flew. And they, they kind of did this in unison with each other. And they also were weaving side to side, you know, and they're darting through valleys and stuff. And if anybody in an airplane, if it was, if the airplane was flying at a supersonic, even heck, even less than supersonic, and that airplane made any sort of erratic or flipping motion, the pilot would just be vaporized. Like the G-forces would be unreal. They would not be able to survive that kind of a maneuver at that speed. Which to me kind of suggests that, uh, Whatever these vehicles were powered with, I would assume it would probably be some kind of a a gravity, you know, distortion type, you know, engine or something like that. You know, so, something that works on gravity, not not like internal combustion. You know? Yeah, it's definitely some sort of novel propulsion seems appropriate for this case. One thing Arnold estimated that they were twenty to twenty five miles away, but again, when you look at the um, at the topography and you look at the possible areas that they could have flown in front of and behind. It's probably a little closer, and there's there's a really good paper by a man named Martin Show. Uh, that's S H O U G H. I hope I'm saying that right. And he looks at the maps and looks at a lot of data and crunches numbers, and he concludes that it was probably closer than that, is maybe as close as 16 miles, but um, he estimates maybe 16 to 20 miles or something like that. Well, and there, there's other there's other you know solid pieces uh, evidence to to go off of as well. Like the um, that DC four uh, that that he had mentioned, um, you know they while well, they they had actually talked to the crew of that plane, um, they said that they didn't observe anything, they didn't see anything that day. But we know that the uh, you know uh, you know obviously 
he said that he saw a DC and that, you know, it definitely was in the air, you know, so yeah. he's not lying about that as much, yeah. you know, for that much, you know, as far as that goes, but. Yeah. And there was a, a split in military intelligence. They, the military did investigate this, but they kind of kept their investigation under wraps and it was kind of 50, 50. There were some that, uh, some people who believed Arnold's story and they believed that the distances he estimated were correct, um, uh, because of, he said, you know, the mountain peaks that we talked about, um, and they established a minimum and a maximum distance. And they concluded that based on um, the minimum uh, distance or the minimum size, something your eye could re uh, resolve at that distance, that the crafts would have been 200 feet long. And therefore, they would have been going as fast as Arnold said they were. Um, there were other people in the military who did not believe Arnold's story. And they thought that Arnold was seeing things that were closer to him, smaller, and were going slower than he said they were. And the the problem with this theory, though, is they they missed the point that Arnold gave an estimate of angular size, not absolute size, in his statement. Um, they erroneously claimed that he saw crafts that were 50 feet long. And Arnold didn't say that. In interviews and stuff, Arnold estimated that the crafts were 100 feet long, not 50. But they sort of somehow came to that conclusion and they misquoted him as saying 50 feet. It went into the file and kind of went into the history of the thing that he said they were 50 feet. I found that almost everywhere I looked, but that's actually not true. When I dug a little bit deeper, Arnold didn't say 50, he said 100. But here's a, um, a quote from Martin Show from his article. It's called, his article is called The Singular Adventure of Mr. Kenneth Arnold, which I'm going to link. I promise this time, guys, I'll put a link in there because it's a really good article. Um, but here's a quote describing the uh, the investigation, which is way better than I could sum it up. He says, the trigonometrical relationship was properly understood by Arnold. He'd offered the newspapers a guess as to the absolute size of the objects. But in his detailed report to the Army Air Force, he contented himself with the remark, I knew that they had to be very large to observe their shape at that distance and gave only an angular equivalent measure. However, it was not understood by the AAF's air technical intelligence specialists. First, they misrepresented Arnold's measurement of relative angular size as an estimate of absolute size. Next, they introduced a simple numerical error into this fabricated absolute size estimate. And finally, they sought to apply this erroneous absolute size figure as though it was a constant on the trigon trigonometry instead of being one of the unknowns we need to solve for. It is little short of incredible that a supposedly scientific analysis can have proceeded on this basis. As Arnold remarked of his sighting, it seems impossible, but there it is. And if so, these are supposedly scientists and people who know how to do math and stuff, and they're making errors that a third grader wouldn't make. Well, I don't know. They probably don't do trigonometry in third grade, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the angular measurement that Arnold used, or he used a cowling tool that's basically like a screwdriver. And he used that to compare the angular size of the DC-4 to the UFOs. And this is actually a little more important than it might seem at first glance, because we know how far the DC-4 was from us, or from us, from Arnold, and we know how, how uh, big it was. We know the size of the DC-4, obviously, because we have them, right? Um, this You can use trigonometry to estimate the sizes of the UFOs based on the numbers that we have. And I'm not really that great at math, but luckily Martin Show is. And in his article, he's done the math for us. So it kind of goes something along the lines of this. The outer span of the engines on the DC-4, which is what he was comparing to the UFOs, is about 60 feet. The DC-4 was about 12 to 15 miles away based on the statements and the conditions during the day. 
And the DC-4 was perpendicular to Arnold, so you wouldn't have to worry about foreshortening of perspective. Um, so it was lined up with them, so you could use it as a measurement. Now, like I said, the span is 60 feet, so you can you can calculate this at 12 miles, and that makes the UFOs, which were the same distance at 16 to 20 miles, give or take, those would be approximately 100 feet long. Um, and this is a really important measurement because it gives us a pretty good idea of how big they were. And we can say, uh, what did the military have at this time that could account for this? And I'll talk a little bit later about uh, supersonic aircraft, but they didn't have anything that size that could fly that fast that could account for the sighting. So this data that Arnold provided us with is really, really good data that I, don't, I can't think of any other sightings that has any kind of measurement like this. Yeah, yeah, very few besides other other pilots, you know. Yeah, but it's 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 rarely this this detailed. I can't think off the top of my head of a case that that uh, that is this detailed that the the person in the moment took that much, uh, you know, effort to to record stuff and to try to figure out what the hell he's he's looking at and and how fast it's going too. Now, obviously, like you know, um, mod, modern day aircraft, especially, you know, military aircraft are going to have a lot more sophistication as far as instruments and, you know, being able to figure out things immediately, you know, because, you know, they're just going to be able to call back to headquarters there and, you know, the simple as asking them a question, they can get back to them real quick, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, you know. After interviewing Arnold, a military report concluded, it is the present opinion of the interviewer that Mr. Arnold actually saw what he stated he saw. It is difficult to believe that a man of his character and apparent integrity would state that he saw objects and write up a report to the extent that he did if he did not see them. And this is an important statement because the the Air Force eventually concluded that what Arnold saw was a mirage. And at this time, the Air Force was a subset of the Army. It was planet Jupiter. Yeah, it was, it was, no, it was Venus. It's always Venus. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. It was Venus, too. At this time, the the Air Force was a part of the Army. It wasn't a separate branch. So if they had an airplane in the area that was operating and could have been a cause of this sighting, they would have known what it was, and they would not have concluded it was a mirage. And um, I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think they ever intended for this stuff to go public because this was before the Freedom of Information Act, which I forget exactly the year that came out, but after that came out, it makes the documents a little more suspect because you don't know if they're planting misinformation in there. But before yeah. those came out, you there's kind of a different tone to the documents I've seen because they never expected them to see the light of day. Yeah, well, and the reaction, the reaction to the case too, and and to uh, to Mr. Arnold there. Um, that's one of the things that kind of stands out to me about this case is, yeah, did he have some some critics that that didn't believe him? Yeah, but it, it, relatively, usually, it wasn't like negative and they didn't try to like assassinate his character. You know what I mean? Where, and there's a lot of cases you can, you can draw from the history of UFO sightings and experiences where, you know, the person's character ends up being assassinated or they end up being, you know, ridiculed and made fun of so much. It really ends up affecting their life in a negative way. You know, I, I know I've heard him, you know, interviews, um, that, you know, he supposedly stated that at certain points where he got kind of tired of it and took a break, but you know, but for the most part, it seems like most people, respected the guy enough to where like they're like well we're gonna basically take him for his word or at least uh we're not gonna think they don't they didn't describe him usually as being crazy you know, or anything like that you know yeah remember in his statement he said that the individuals he's communi spoke with and communicated with those people were reasonable it was only the press that actually gave him shit over it because mm -hmm. that's what mm -hmm. i guess that's what the press does you know they're always making stuff yeah. up and 
pointing fingers. Yeah, well, they, they sensationalize it. You know, it's yeah. nothing new. They have a long history of it. Yeah. The really interesting thing that happened is that because there was a wave of sightings around this time, it wasn't just Arnold, but like I said, a lot of people, and like Arnold said in his statement, a lot of people also saw very similar objects. Uh, because of that, the government began a secret investigation and um, they concluded that the saucer reports were not imaginary, that they could not be explained by natural phenomenon, and that something real was flying around. And this led directly to the formation of Project Sign, which was followed by Project Glu- Gludge, Grudge, <laughs> which was followed by Project Grudge and the uh, the more well-known Project Blue Book. So this- I like Gludge better. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go with Gludge. So Arnold, <laughs> his sighting and all the sightings surrounding it, it was, a, it was actually a genuine UFO flap, believe it or not, at this time. Uh, because mm-hmm. of all these sightings, um, that led directly to what we know today as Project Blue Book, which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think the the way that he, I mean, th- that drawing also, I mean, anybody that, you know, you can go on uh, Google Images and just for your, your search, just type in, you know, Kenneth Arnold um, UFO drawing or something, you know. Uh, and, and the drawing's pretty detailed, you know, and it's very specific, you know, and it's a, I, I know for sure, you know, being interested in it, vaguely, at least in, in uh, experimental planes, you know, that, that we know about at least, I know that that, that shape has been experimented with before, you know, um, yeah. and, and around that period of time too. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, that's what he saw, but I know that that, that is a, a aerodynamic shape that has been considered, you know? Well, the... There is, so there's a, I was going to talk about this a little later under, when we talk about the skeptical explanations, there was an Mm -hmm. airplane called a flying flapjack that was being developed at the time or maybe a little before. Mm -hmm. And it does, it actually does look very, very similar. The outline of the airplane looks very similar to what Arnold drew. The difference being that the flying flapjack has a couple of engines sticking off of it and those are to the front and Arnold, what Arnold drew would have traveled in the opposite direction. So the, it looks kind of like, um, like a curve. So imagine like an oval and then at the back of the oval, it's got like a concave cutout. It, um, is basically, I guess how I would describe it. And then on the concave part where the flapjack is, that's where it goes forward and the wings stick out from there on Arnold's sighting. He said it traveled the other direction. So the flapjack would have been flying backwards to account for Arnold's sighting. And not only that, but there were only ever two flying flapjacks made, and only one of those was completed and actually flew. Not nine yeah, of them. And he's saying he saw nine nine objects. Yeah, not nine, but one. And the maximum speed of the flying flapjack, I, I believe, would have been estimated at somewhere like 550 miles an hour. And that's an estimated top speed, but that's nowhere near fast enough to even meet Arnold's lower estimate of 1,200, let alone his higher estimate of 1,700 miles an hour. And there, there was also another airplane. I forget the name of it. I think they called it the Flying Pancake or whatever, or so, Flying oh, something. I love pancakes. And it was kind of like a different model of the Flying flap, Flapjack, but they only made one of those. So even if somehow magically the, all these three were flying together, there's still only three of them. It could not have accounted for the nine that Arnold saw, let alone the other witnesses, which I'll get to in a little while. But yeah. But yeah, that's well, hey, hey, yeah. Real, real quick, because I don't think I've ever asked you this. Actually, what is your favorite type of uh, flapjack? There, pancake. Well, the my favorite kind of pancake, actually, in Southern California, there's uh, I think in Temecula, there's a pancake place called the Original Pancake House, I believe, and they do mm-hmm. um, they do like sourdough starter or something for their pancakes. Anyways, they oh, make yeah. amazing. I love their pancakes. That that would be my favorite flapjack. 
Now you're talking, talking to business right there. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to that place, but I highly can, recommend can it. Get me all hot and bothered. I have once, yes, yeah. with the uh, Agent Rosebud, yes. as a matter of fact. <laughs> they make some excellent stuff. Yeah, but you, you didn't uh, – you, you kind of skirted around the, the the question there, man. What's your favorite type of pancake? It's their – just their basic pancake. Oh, just the regular? Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, just, just the regular. A, yeah, okay. All right, all right. That, that particular restaurant's regular. Yes, yeah. You can put some bananas okay. on there, some syrup or whatever, but it's just a really good pancake. I could dig it. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? What's your favorite flapjack? Well, you know, I'm I'm actually kind of more of a uh, a waffle guy myself, but you can't go wrong with a good solid flapjack, baby. Now, I like a, I like pecan, a good solid pecan with a, some solid uh, syrup on there. You know. All right. Some some that's not too like a. You know, fake and, and just too sugary. I like a, a good solid, you know, uh, amber maple, you know, something like that. You should try their – they have like an oven-baked German-style pancake. They they put, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they put it in like an iron skillet, I think, and they bake it in the oven. It comes out all fluffy and mm-hmm. and gooey and stuff. It's delicious. Oh, you should try it. Oh, yeah, dude. I'm a bit of a glutton. I, I love uh, – you know, I got a waffle machine myself at home. It's nothing no, – no big deal. I like to uh, – yeah, you know, sometimes you see people like will put cooked bacon within the waffle. Oh yeah, that sounds delicious. Me myself, I like to crisp up, crisp up that bacon real good, you know, and then break it apart like it's bacon bits. You know what I mean? Then mm-hmm. mix that throughout the uh, waffle mix first, and then 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 go to town on that son bitch. Oh, you know? some cook it up with and, some maple and some uh, some pecans. That sounds good. Hell, hell to the yeah, man. Oh, I'm getting make hungry. Into, <laughs> make it into poo. Yes. All right. Anyways, I digress. Yes, let's. Let's get back to the uh, topic at hand here. So I looked yeah. up a little bit about what kind of stuff we had in 1947 that we could fly around at supersonic speeds just just to check. You know, maybe it was an airplane, and maybe we did have something back then that could go Mach two. Um, and I I did find one thing that could go faster than Mach two. Actually, the V two rocket that the Germans developed in World War two could had a max speed of 3,580 miles per hour. Um, and people, when they described it, they said it looked like it was a meteor in flight and it had like a, it would trail sparks and stuff. Uh, the V2 rocket was about 45 feet by five feet with an 11 foot wingspan. And it looks basically like a rocket. It doesn't look disc shape or concave or anything. Um, and the, the max speed is when it's coming back down. This was actually a ballistic rocket or a ballistic missile, which means that it does they don't launch it straight and level. They launch it up at an arc, and then it falls down at an arc to hit its target. So it, first of all, it couldn't have really flown level at that speed, and it couldn't have hugged the terrain because its guidance system was very, very crude. I mean, when they launched these things, they were lucky if they hit within five miles of their target. So there's... Yeah, they were notoriously inaccurate. There's not a chance that it would have been weaving in and out of mountain peaks because it just didn't have a sophisticated mm-hmm. enough guidance system. Well, and a group of them, let alone a group of them in formation, you know, yeah. mirroring each other's, you know, flight actions, whatever the hell the term is. Yeah, it's just it's just not possible. There were some a few other rockets and artillery shells that did break the sound barrier at the time, um, but none of them even come even close to being able to match the description. Just like the V two, they don't know, make any sense. Quick little side note: yeah. I'm pretty sure I've had some poops that broke the sound barrier. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm I'm quite positive, actually. Oh, your your poor toilet. I heard a boom. I heard a boom, man. Scares <laughs> a sound boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, a little history of a uh, just real brief overview of what sound sound barriers were broken at when. Um, 
just after, well, not just after, but shortly after Arnold's sighting on October 14th in 1947, that's when Choke, Chuck Yeager, Choke, <laughs> Choke Yeager, that's when Chuck, Choke Chicken. Yeah. When, when Choke Chicken officially broke the sound barrier in a Bell X1 going 807 mile, 807.2 miles per hour. And it is possible that the sound barrier might have been broken a little bit before then, and it just wasn't an official record-breaking sound barrier thing. But mm. it's still nowhere near 1,200 or 1,700 miles per hour. Um, yeah, yeah. They didn't do 1,200 miles per hour officially until 1957, uh, 1,600 miles per hour, 1961, and finally 2,000 miles per hour in 1966. So they, it would have been a really long time, you know, like a decade or more before we had anything that could fly that fast. And if you look at pictures of these airplanes, like the Bell X-1, they, they're not, none of them are disc shaped. They look like little missiles. They flew them up to altitude and dropped them off of like a bigger airplane, like a missile. They only ever built one or two of them at a time. They never tested them nine in formation, and none of them ever flew that fast at that low of an altitude. So even though we did get stuff that For was- that long of a distance. Either. Yeah. We did get stuff eventually that went that fast. None of it comes even close to being able to perform like what Arnold saw. None of them flipped around and not, you know, none of that other stuff. So even today, there's still nothing that I, that I was able to find that could account for the sighting. So that that was a just a real quick little look at the supersonic stuff. So what, what do you think, man? What, what what do you think it was? Well, uh, I'll get to that when a little bit later. But oh. first, oh, we, yeah. yeah, you're right. We have a lot of other sightings that I, I'd like to just kind of go over real quick. Oh yes, just because, um, and you know what these people said they saw because it's these are independent yeah. witnesses who saw stuff very similar to Arnold. By so remember mm-hmm. Arnold. Well, it's very important. It's very important too because Arnold, Arnold himself is an independent witness. You know, so yeah. it, because he himself uh, didn't have a group of people or anybody else with him, it is very important to have other witnesses that that back up what he's saying. Yeah, they you know? they didn't talk with each other. They didn't plan it out. They didn't get paid by unsolved mysteries to make stuff up or whatever. You mm-hmm. know. Um, so remember Arnold was on uh, June twenty fourth. By the end of July. A researcher who went went back and compiled all the media reports of the time, by the end of July, there were over 850 UFO reports in the U.S. media alone. And people saw this all over the world, not just in the United States. 850, that's like a legitimate flap. They call it a UFO flap. That's a lot of sightings. But one of the most important sightings, which corroborated, um, corroborated Arnold's sighting, was a prospector named Fred Johnson who was in the area around um he was in he saw similar objects around the same time as Arnold and he was able to see them through his personal telescope he said they were oval with a tapered point uh, he saw this on Mount Adams he was about 5000 feet altitude himself and they flew overhead and he said they were faster than any airplane he'd ever seen he described an object in the tail end that looked like a big hand of a clock shifting from side to side, like a pendulum, like on a grandfather clock or something. And that's kind of a weird and specific detail that I never, I didn't, I didn't see any other witnesses who described anything like that. So I don't know what to make of it, but it is what it is. That's what this guy described. Um, he also said that when they flew overhead, it made his compass, uh, the hands on his compass move around kind of weird, but who, uh, who knows what to make of that could be some sort of interference or magnetic. I don't know. Gravity modification or, I mean, gravity distortion engine. The really interesting thing about Fred Johnson sighting is this became the first unidentified sighting in the Air Force files 
which is ironic because Arnold's sighting, which has much better observational data, was dismissed as a mirage. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. And we have another sighting in the area about 30 minutes before Arnold had his sighting. A, a dude uh, by the name of L.G. Bernier of Richmond, Washington. He was about 140 miles southeast of Mount Rainier. He saw three of the objects fly overhead. And remember, this, again, this was 30 minutes before Arnold's sighting. He said they were flying edgewise uh, towards Mount Rainier. And there were, again, he also said they were faster than anything he had ever seen. Uh, he was one of the first witnesses to suggest that these could be extraterrestrial vehicles. And I just want to point out that none of these witnesses reported, at least that I could find, none of them reported hearing any sort of sonic boom. And that's a very unusual detail because anything traveling this fast ought to make a sonic boom, especially yeah. if... Yeah, and if a sonic boom happens too, they're, they're, every, every, every damn buddy in the area is going to hear it, you know? Yeah, they're, yeah, it's unmistakable. When I was a kid, I think it was before they outlawed flying supersonic above the United States, which they're not supposed to do anymore. But when I was a kid in Southern California, once in a while, you would hear a sonic boom. And it's it's uh, pretty distinctive. Mm -hmm. It sounds like artillery yeah, going off in the sky or something. It's loud. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, you won't, you won't even see the airplane. You'll just hear the sonic boom, and you'll know that they're flying around somewhere. But uh, you can hear it all over the place. So people would have definitely reported that if it was something that happened, which is, I think, an important detail. To, again, another detail that suggests that there could have been some kind of um, novel propulsion that we don't know about going on. Miss, Mrs. Ethel Wheelhouse of Yakima, Washington, Yakima, Yakima, she saw several strange Yakima. flying discs flying very fast around the same time that Arnold had his sighting. And there was also another woman near Tacoma, Washington, that saw a chain of bright objects flying at a high speed near Mount Rainier. So we have a whole lot of corroborating witnesses, but one of the most important one, ones was a Washington State Forest Service officer at a watchtower in Diamond Gap, which is 20 miles south of Yakima. He reported seeing flashes moving in a straight line over Mount Rainier at the time of Arnold's sighting. And I like that one because I, I, th I feel like a government employee is far less likely to make stuff up because it could cost them their job. You know, yeah. these people are representatives oh, of the government and they, they, they're forced to take this stuff seriously. And I just like to, to um, remind everybody at this time, it was the height of the Cold War because it's always the height of the Cold War. And at this time, a lot of people were reporting stuff, not because they thought it was UFOs and not because they thought it was aliens, but because at this time there was a high level of, I guess you could say paranoia or a high level of nervousness. Mm -hmm. um, people were worried that Russia was flying stuff over us. We were flying stuff over Russia. We were kind of button heads at the time and people were really nervous. And if they saw something, they reported it to the government. Uh, because um, they wanted the government to know about it in case it was some enemy trying to surveil us or trying to get over us and bomb us or something. Remember, uh, yeah. in World War II was one of the last times, you know, since 9-11, that we actually had attacks on U.S. soil. Like the, you know, the California coast was attacked a little bit. So people were very nervous at this time of foreign powers. Um, although that said, if there were 850 reports Probably for every report, there were 10 people that didn't report it because, you know, at least because people don't always report this stuff. So that means that people were seeing this stuff all over the damn place. Everywhere, probably people were seeing this stuff and just not reporting it for whatever reason. Well, and also like like you had, you know, touched on earlier that 
UFO sightings with craft that are shaped this this very either the exact same shape described or, or very very close similar it has happened throughout the years in, in different spots all over the damn world. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty common. This this shape of craft is is relatively common as far as what's uh, reported throughout the you know a lot of different years. Yeah, it's almost it's almost become a cliche. Like if you saw one of these and reported it nowadays, some people would just roll their eyes. Oh, okay, you saw a flying saucer. Sure, buddy. Well, let's go watch Mars Attacks or whatever. You know, just, they probably would just brush you off. You know, as as being a hoaxer, just just out of hand. You know, if you saw a cigar shape, maybe they'd take it seriously, but definitely not a flying saucer. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there there were a lot of other sightings, not just in the Washington area or in the in the mountain areas, the Cascades where Arnold was at, but like over in other areas like Seattle and things like that on the same day. And in the following weeks, there were a lot of other sightings, like I said. So the following day, two two more people reported seeing similar objects. On June 28th, an Air Force pilot flying an F-51 reported a formation of five to six circular objects near Lake Mead in Nevada at 3.15 in the afternoon. So the and some I'll point out the, the time of these because a lot of sightings happen to be at night because of, you know, bright objects are easier to see at night. But a lot of these sightings were actually during the day. So... On June 28 at nighttime at 9.20 p.m., four officers, two pilots, and two intelligence officers from Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, saw a bright light traveling across the sky. They first saw it on the horizon. It zigzagged toward them with high bursts of speed, and then when it was overhead, it made a sharp 90-degree turn and then flew off to the south. And that's, I mean, that case would be worth looking at as like its own separate case file because we have really good witnesses and it's really bizarre. And we still don't really have anything that I'm aware of that can fly at a high speed and make a 90 degree turn. It's just a really weird sighting. A woman in Milwaukee reported seeing 10 of them flying over her like the blue blazes. There was a school bus driver in Clarion, Iowa, who saw an object streak across the sky and follow, and it was followed a few seconds later by 12 more. There were people in a car near White Sands Proving Grounds in New Mexico, and they saw a pulsating light travel from horizon to horizon in 30 seconds, which, you know, seems pretty fast to me. Maybe it was a satellite. Who knows? Um, but where we got another really big wave of sightings was the weekend of July 4th. There, those seemed to be sort of centered around Portland, Oregon, but they were they were all over the country. That was just where we got the highest number of reports. Yeah, it was fireworks, I tell you. Yeah, it was just fireworks. So a couple of, just a handful of those sightings on 11 a.m. on July 4th near Redmond, a car of people saw four disc-shaped objects streaking past Mount Jefferson. At 1.05 p.m., a policeman in the parking lot of the Portland City Police Headquarters noticed pigeons fluttering around as if they were scared. He looked up and he saw five large disc-shaped objects. Two of them were going south and three were going east. They were very fast and appeared to be oscillating about their lateral as- axis. Axis? I almost said axis. What the hell is an axis? I don't know. <laughs> a few minutes later, two other policemen saw three more of them flying in a line. Maybe it was the same ones. We don't know for sure. Shortly after that, four harbor patrolmen called and reported three to six more flying at a very fast speed and oscillating about their axis as well, which... You know, it, it, if you look at it like they're lined up, it could be the same craft. We don't know for sure. A woman in Portland about 4.30 on that day reported one that looked like a new dime flipping around, which I, I like that description. Like, just imagine a shiny new dime in the sky kind of flipping around as it zipped across, the you know, from horizon to horizon in a few seconds. Just really weird. <laughs> 
in Vancouver, Washington, some sheriff's deputies reported seeing 20 or 30 of them flying overhead. So like a whole whole swarm of them. Like that's that's crazy. And at night on the 4th, a United Airlines crew flying near Emmett, Idaho, saw five of them. And they actually filed a report. One of the pilots said, Five somethings, which were thin and smooth on the bottom and rough appearing on top, were seen silhouetted against the sunset shortly after the plane took off from Boise at 8.04 p.m. We saw them clearly. We followed them in a northeasterly direction for about 45 minutes. They finally disappeared. We were unable to tell whether they outsped us or disintegrated. We can't say whether they were smear-like, oval, or anything else, but whatever they were, they were not aircraft clouds or smoke. And that's an interesting description, and to me, it kind of means that these things were so fast that they just sort of disappeared. He said, we didn't know if they disintegrated or what happened to them. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird. On July yeah. 6th. Why would you even take that into into consideration to disintegration? Yeah. Well, maybe no. he meant like it, they could have been a meteor and like a meteor will disintegrate as it, as it enters the atmosphere or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that just speaks to the, the, you know, what they saw, you know I mean? They, they saw something very, very, it made a, a very big impression on them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And obviously For them, it was a dramatic sight. Obviously a pilot's going to be familiar with meteors that, you know, you're going to see those. I'm sure if you're flying at night. Hmm. So on July 6, a staff sergeant in Birmingham, Alabama, saw several dim glowing lights speeding across the sky, and he was actually supposedly able to take a photograph of them, but I couldn't locate this photo. If anybody out there knows where this photo is, then uh, go ahead and send us links. I'd love to see it. Um, also on July 6, the crew of an Air Force B-25 saw a bright disc-shaped object at 9 p.m., at Fairfield Susan Air Force Base in California, a pilot saw something travel three-fourths across the sky in a few seconds, and this object was oscillating on its lateral axis. Moving forward mm -hmm. to July 7th, this is a this is a really good, I love this one. William Rhodes photographed an object over Phoenix, Arizona. He got two pictures, and the object has a rounded front with a crescent back and shows a dark spot in the middle that could be a hole or a canopy or something. Um, Arnold was shown the photographs by government agents and Arnold this, obviously he was shown this after he wrote a statement, uh, that I read earlier, but he was shown photographs of this and Arnold said that it looked a lot like what he had seen. Now, the reason I love this one so much is you can actually go and Google this photograph and you could see this photograph for yourself. And it appears that the military thought that this was a genuine photograph. So we could have here. A photographic, uh, a photo, uh, a photographic. We could have here a photograph of the actual crafts that Arnold saw, which is why I think it's so exciting. We don't know 100% that these are real photographs of the things that were zipping around the skies, but I think there's a real reasonable chance that it could be. Have you actually seen these photographs, Agent Anderson? Agent Anderson, <laughs> Agent ETA? Have you seen these <laughs> photographs from William Rhodes? No, you know, actually, I don't believe I have. All right, let me see if I can find I'm, you a link I'm going here. To be I'm going to be looking in them up right now. Um, let's it, well, see. If I, if I have, I'm, I'm, I'm brain farting on that shit right now. There, you say William Rhodes? Yeah, William Rhodes. William Rhodes. So I think there's William. a good... I think there's a good picture in this article. Maybe. Maybe not. Let's see. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think it's on this one. Oh, yeah. Here we go. All right. I found it. Let me see if I can send you a link to this article. I kept the tab open because um, I want to put a link to this so people can see it themselves. Let's see. Yeah. Send you this link through Skype here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? What? 
Yeah, oh, you know what? Yeah, I think I have seen this picture. It does definitely look familiar. It is a, I, I was just, it I is just a classic right picture, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I looked so I type, I guess I typed in William Rhodes UFC pick. And like it just it kept on like pulling up like pictures of like Dustin Poirier and stuff and I was like, what the hell? Like why? Why yeah. I, I don't know anybody even in the UFC named William Rhodes. I don't understand. They, I just got UFC on the brain because uh you know there's a, a big event tonight. Is yeah, Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa. Oh yeah, it's gonna be I'm amped, dude. This is gonna be a good one. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, boy. How do then uh, Jan Blokovich versus uh, Dominic Reyes? Yeah, it's I, I kind of got Dominic Reyes for that one. Heavyweight. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I mean, shit. I mean, it's Jan Blokovich is a dog, man, and that dude, he has a lot of experience. You know, he's going to be calm. He's he's displayed a, a high level of technique throughout you know his last couple of fights. And yeah, I don't know. It, 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 I don't know. I mean, D- Dominic Reyes. I think. Uh, one of the reasons why he probably lost the, the decision against uh, John Jones, if we could just digress real quick, I, I suppose, real quick. Um, the, the last couple of rounds, he kind of just he, he hit a wall and slowed down quite a bit in pace and output, you know. So, or he was I'm robbed. That's why. <laughs> or he was robbed. Well, I, I think. I, well, I, I think they, a little bit of that too. I, but I think mean, most people, the rounds that they they give John Jones, if they, you know, whatever rounds they do give him, are, are the fourth and fifth, you know. So typically, typically, you know. So. Yeah, I had Reyes yeah, winning you know. that fight, but I guess it, it was. Close-ish, but I don't know. I I saw it as a robbery, but I suppose you can make an argument for, for you know for John Jones winning it. Hmm. Yeah. Whatever. But yeah, yeah, I do recognize this picture though. So there's the link I sent you to. It's from a website called Saturday Night Euphoria, which I actually I really like this website. It goes into a lot of detail about like let's say it has a series of articles on Kenneth Arnold where it posts a mm-hmm. ton of newspaper articles. It goes into the Maury Island incident, which we, you know, is a whole separate thing that Arnold was involved in. And it talks about some of the people, like what they did and, you know, behind the scenes kind of stuff is really great, really great series of articles mm-hmm. on this one. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I don't think they're updating it anymore. Whoever runs it, unfortunately, but the stuff on there is excellent. I highly recommend it. I'm going to probably link to this in the description, but if you scroll down a little bit, it has both of the pictures side by side next to each other. And um, it, I mean, it's hard to tell, but it does look like an actual craft and it does look like what Arnold was describing. And it does look like what he drew, the pictures he drew. So for me, it's pretty exciting because this could be the actual craft. This could be a picture. Let's, let's not uh, beat around the bush here. This could be a picture of an actual alien craft that visited our planet. And I'm not sure that that's hundred percent true, but it's exciting just to kind of go out on a limb and say, what if it is, you know, so I, I kind of nerd out on this stuff sometimes. What do you what do you make of this photo, Agent ETA? Well, I'm trying to get past my you know um, inability to m- maneuver through computers and stuff like that. I thought you sent the link through uh, through email, but it's 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 a uh, it's through Skype. Yes, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah, send it through Skype. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I actually just loaded that up right now. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I'm seeing that that picture of uh, all the clouds and stuff. Uh, looks like a, a storm front coming in over a desert city. Some sort. Oh, Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. If you scroll down a little bit on the page, you'll see. So you scroll down, you'll see Arnold Kenneth Arnold's drawing, and then I seen that. I seen that uh, that 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 other picture first. Yeah, and it, yeah. And if you scroll down, you'll see the two pictures side by side. It's about I don't know, maybe about ten percent down the page. Maybe it looks like. As a picture from what looks like to be a, a newspaper, it says mystery. What uh, what sits? Yeah, uh, photo, photographed over Phoenix. Yeah, that's it. it. That looks like the same. 
Yeah, you got two pictures of the thing. One of them's a little blurry. The other one looks pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could see... Yeah, I don't have a Kenneth Arnold's picture, you know, but I, I mean, um, I, I definitely remember what it looks like. Well, I have it on a different uh, window here. But yeah, on, on the, the picture to the right over there, um, definitely looks like what he could have been describing, I think. Yeah. from Especially from the angle that he was looking... Because he, he was observing it from a different angle than uh, these pictures, you know? Yeah. But it's, I don't know, it's it's sort of like an exciting little detail. It doesn't really prove anything, but it's definitely worth a look, I think. For anybody listening, if you're interested, uh, put the link in there and check it out because it's a pretty cool picture. Or if you wanted to Google it yourself, it is William Rhodes is the name of the guy who took the picture over Phoenix, Arizona. So July 7th, William Rhodes, Phoenix, Arizona. Put that in your your old Googly machine and probably you'll get a, these pictures will pop up. They're um, probably some of the more well-known UFO pictures floating out there on the interwebs. So there's another gentleman by the name of Frank Ryman. He also got a photo and this photo is also available online, but it doesn't show very much detail. It's just like a spot in the sky and it could be anything. Who knows? Um, Based on his statement, you know, based on what he saw, I think it's probably a picture of the similar object, but the picture itself doesn't necessarily bear that out. It's, it doesn't have that much detail. All right. Moving along with some of these witness statements on July 8th, at 10.10 in the morning at Muroc Air Force Base, which is later renamed to Edwards Air Force Base, a test pilot was warming up an XP-84 for a flight test, and he saw a, sphere, a spherical yellow-white craft to the north going west. Uh, several airmen and officers also saw three silver objects headed west on the same day around the same time. Also on July 8th at 11.50 on Rogers Dry Lake, which is the dry lake next to Muroc or Edwards, that's where a lot they'll land stuff sometimes because it's, it's a big, huge area where they can land crafts that need a really long runway. A crew of technicians, they were watching uh, two P-82s and an A-26 who were about to do a parachute test. Um, and they saw a white round object. At first, they thought it was the parachute and they thought that the crew had, the air people in the air had dropped the parachute early. Um, but then they saw it descending lower. And when it got lower, they were able to see more details. They saw it had an oval shape and it had two projections on its upper surface that looked like knobs or thick fins of some kind. And they appeared to be rotating or crossing each other periodically. Um, there was no smoke, flame, propellers, uh, flight control surfaces, engine noise, or other means of propulsion or flight. They watched it for about 90 seconds before it went behind some mountains. About four hours later on that day, an F-51 pilot flying at about an altitude of 20,000 feet and about 40 miles from Muroc Air Force Base, saw a flat object reflecting light, and it had also had no fins or wings that they could see, and it was above the pilot. He climbed to try to catch it, but was unable, unable to get close enough to get a better view of it. Um, moving right along here, there were some picnickers in Idaho. They had various sightings on different days, and they reported as many as 35 discs at one time. And uh, that's just a real brief overview of the many, many sightings that were reported in this time period. It goes on and on and on. You could, I mean, we could go on for hours reading these different witness statements. There's so many of them. It just kind of, mm-hmm. kind of boggles the mind. It's, wow. you know, we're only, only scratching the surface here. Um, at first, the military was kind of freaked out. They were worried about Russians overflying us with some kind of new test craft. Uh, remember at this time that we had, things like Operation Paperclip going on and the Russians had their mm-hmm. version of Operation Paperclip where yeah. um, there was a mad rush after World War II to get as many of the German scientists as possible 
And so we had uh, we had like Werner von Braun. We got him, and he he's the guy who basically set up NASA for us. So both mm-hmm. countries had top secret projects where they were developing new types of aircraft. So they were worried that Russians were you know they had developed something new and they were using it to fly over United States and to surveil us. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, other people in the military intelligence were were saying that now that's not possible. There's no way anybody's developed anything that could do this. And those people thought that it might be ET. So there was, there was sort of like this divide in the military intelligence at the time. Um, and for more discussion on that, you can listen to chapter two of Edward Ruppelt's report on unidentified flying objects, which you can find on our feed that I recorded previously, or you can download it. It's a free PDF. Um, that cha- that chapter talks a little bit about Kenneth Arnold, and it goes into his sightings, you know, over Mount Rainier, and it also talks about a little bit about the um, the uh, what was it the his other thing he was involved with the um, oh, I just mentioned it brain fart what was that ETA well whatever the 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 other thing that Kenneth Ar- Arnold was uh, involved in yeah my my brain my mind is going blank here but he was involved in another uh well I know that later on he was involved in um, interviewing a lot of people who who had uh, claimed UFO experiences of, of of one shape size or another you know yeah he was he was involved in that hoax where a couple of airmen crashed and died when they went to go investigate it oh well uh, oh, I can't believe yeah, I'm, I'm super brain fart anyways the uh Rupert talks about that as well and um, it's wor- worth a look because it's uh, an inside view of how they investigated these things. It's really interesting. But uh, maybe if you're more casual, it's uh, too nerdy for you. I don't know. So anyways, there was these sightings came in, not just the Pacific Northwest, all over the United States. Every state had a sighting like this. And all over the world, sightings came in. Um, and the, the military concluded that there was no conceivable way that any aircraft could perform that would match the reported maneuvers of the UFOs. And that's a direct quote from a military report. Um, we just wouldn't be able to withstand the G-forces, the maneuvers. We didn't have any material that could withstand the friction from the heat. And they just they couldn't figure out what these things were um, without resorting to some sort of uh, you know novel explanation, like saying they were geese or meteors or something that didn't really match the... The, um, the sightings. Venus. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's the witness stuff. Um, I did, I found a really interesting alternate theory and this was from a book by a guy named James Carrion, which you can find online. There's a free PDF. It's called the Roswell deception. And it's more about Roswell, but he does talk a little bit about the Arnold sighting. He says that, uh, according to him, Joseph Stalin over in Russia he was interested in developing a version of Eugen Sanger's America bomber. That was a bomber under development by the Nazis that could reach America. The, the concept was that it would skip off of different atmospheric, atmospheric layers, kind of like you were skipping a stone on water. And, and it was like a delta wing, right? Yeah, and that's, that's how it would be able to reach the United States without having to worry about refueling or anything like that. It would just sort of float on the atmospheric layers. Um, the the idea here that he puts forward, that Carrion puts forward, is that the crashed marine transport was used as sort of a honeypot to draw witnesses to the area, and then our government set up some kind of sighting that people would see and then report to the media that then the Russians would see, and they would kind of get freaked out and they would try to investigate it. So it was sort of like a deception kind of a thing. And it seems somewhat plausible because the reward money of $5,000 uh, $60,000 in today's money seems like a little bit of money for families to just sort of scrape together on their own. It seems sort of like that would be more like a government kind of a reward, 
not individuals in a family, but you never know. Maybe there, maybe somebody had, you know, who was wealthy had a child on the plane and they put forth more, most of the money. Who knows for yeah, sure? It's not, it's not crazy ridiculous. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely out of the norm. But the, it's a really interesting uh, theory. And uh, Carrion's book, he goes over a lot of stuff and he makes a really good argument. But um, the one thing that uh, uh, that I kind of find it implausible is that uh, the, the sightings were all over the country and all over the world. So why would the U- U.S. government, why would we lure people to Mount Rainier only to put these things literally everywhere, not just in that area? It doesn't make sense that we would use that as a, a honeypot to lure witnesses and then go ahead and provide witnesses everywhere. So that's sort of the flaw in the theory to me. Um, but it's still a really interesting idea. And the the flipping or erratic motions, the idea is that that would have gotten Stalin's attention because it would have been similar to the motions that the America bomber might have had flying. So it's a fun theory, but eh, who knows? What do you make of that one, ETA? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pre- I pretty much agree with you. I think uh, the same thing. I mean, it's... I don't know if, uh, I mean, for my own personal pr- opinion, you know, I, I don't agree with that that theory. Um, it, it is an interesting one, and I don't think necessarily that unplausible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It has has some some roots in reality. You know what I mean? But um, I don't know. Yeah, you you want? I, I guess you want to get into uh, our opinions. Or well, I have a, a couple more things here. I have another interesting oh, yeah. okay. theory that I found which actually this didn't occur to me. I just found it on some forums, but somebody proposed, I forget who, because I, I didn't write it down, unfortunately, but somebody proposed that what everybody was seeing was actually the same thing that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, you know, the infamous Roswell thing. Oh yeah, And yeah. because the Roswell crash happened somewhere in July, I forget the exact date, but it, it was happening basically at the same time as all these sightings. So it is plausible. Hypothetically, let's let's just make the assumption, which this is a real big assumption, but let's just say for the sake of argument that a, a UFO did crash at Roswell, then it is plausible that what everybody was seeing flying around was one of those crafts that did crash in Roswell. And there's not really a whole lot to it, but I thought it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting little theory there. And it makes a lot of sense to me. That'd be cool if it was linked. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm not. I'm not sold on the Roswell thing at all. But it's it's just a fun little theory. So I have a little bit here on what the skeptics might might have thought. Um, probably the foremost of them is uh, a gentleman that you might be familiar with, named uh, Alan Hynek or J. Alan Hynek, as the name may go. Mm-hmm. And he said mm-hmm. the entire report of this incident is replete with inconsistencies. The report cannot bear even superficial examination, therefore must be disregarded. And for those of you unfamiliar, this was one of the scientific advisors for Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book. He worked for the government for a very, very long time analyzing UFO reports. Um, But unfortunately, he didn't actually investigate this. He was just using false assumptions that we talked about earlier to make his conclusions. He didn't look at any of the data himself. The language that he uh, was using too is very matter of fact, you know. Yeah, like very final. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like this, this is not a thing. This is all fake, basically. With, but he didn't look into it himself, so it's it's crazy he would say that. But mm-hmm. um, well, he's the expert. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. But so he concluded this somehow that the objects were had a size of eighty arc seconds, which so the way one degree, if you look, if you go outside and you look up in the sky, and uh, there's three hundred sixty degrees, right? Um, 
Each degree can be divided into 60 arc minutes, and each arc minute is is divided into 60 arc seconds. And then I think that comes out to be like one arc second is one three thousand one twenty five thousandth of a degree or I don't know something like that. So it's a one arc second is very very small. It's angular measurement. That's what we're talking about. Um, so he he concluded that the objects were eighty arc seconds, and that's too small to even see. He said that one hundred and eighty arc seconds was the minimum angular size that you needed to be able to see something. Therefore, the objects hmm. must have been 2,000 feet by 100 feet, and that's an unrealistic size. So therefore, Arnold didn't see anything at all, <laughs> which is a very, uh, mm-hmm. very bizarre set of lo- logical gymnastics there to, to disprove the sighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for reference, the large, largest thing that was ever flown that I could find was the Hindenburg, the airship, and that was about 800 feet by 100 feet, which is um, almost half the size of 2,000 feet. But it just seems bizarre to me that that you can conclude, well, that was too big to have been in existence, so therefore he didn't see anything at all, which uh, it's it's really kind of a weird thing. But there's a flaw to his idea, because at 2,000 feet, at about 15 to 20 miles that Arnold saw, each object would have actually been one degree wide, which is about twice the diameter of the full moon. So that doesn't even make sense based on his own numbers. The whole thing is just, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And furthermore, Mm -hmm. to completely destroy Hynek's argument here, 180 arc seconds, that assumption is based on the Snell and eye test. And this is the, uh, the resolution acuity of the eye or the ability to discern small lines from each other, not the ability for the eyeball to see anything at all. Um, I got, so this, I'm not an expert on this. I actually got this data from, from the, uh, paper I mentioned earlier, but supposedly detection acuity is the ability to see anything at all. And that can be as small as half an arc second or 360 times smaller than what Hynek is assuming here. So at 20 miles away, this is three inches, not 2000 feet. Apparently that's the numbers I was able to find in that paper. Who knows if it's true, but it's way off what, what Arnold is saying. And, um, my, my kind of take on this is Arnold should stay in his lane is how I see this. He's an expert <laughs> at astronomy, but that doesn't mean he's an expert at everything. And this is kind of how, what yeah. skeptics will do. A skeptic will be an expert in one specific field like physics. And then they'll, they'll use that to say that they're an expert in all fields. And then they'll make these ridiculous claims to dismiss these cases, but they don't hold up. The skeptic explanations almost never hold up. And, you know, in, in good cases, not every case is a good case, mm-hmm. but in the good cases, the skeptic explanations tend to just fall apart and just become really silly once you really analyze them. Yeah. Well, even within physics, there, there's, you know, d- different uh, rabbit holes or whatever you want to call it, you know, different, different areas that if you're just a general expert in physics, you know, yeah. you may not be proficient at all. in you know, just because you're not experienced is all yeah. obviously, but you know. So one of the other foremost skeptical explanations is that Arnold saw geese or some kind of birds, flock of birds flying around, Um, and this is because he compared the object's movement to a line of geese or a flock of geese because of their wavering or flipping motion. But Mm -hmm. this is sort of misquoting him to say this because he didn't say that he saw geese. He said their motion was like geese. I'm sure he's seen birds flying around. Yeah. He's seen birds flying around. If he saw birds, he would have just said they were birds. He wouldn't have said that they were moving like birds. So this is all, this is just a complete yeah. misquotation of what he saw. And furthermore, 
skeptics will say, oh, well, some birds are the white birds can reflect light very brightly. But that's not what he mm. described. That's not what other people described. They were described very bright mirror like reflection of sunlight. Birds just yeah, never yeah. reflect sunlight like that. So it's just kind of silly. Well, and also a, a pilot with the 900, uh, nine, I'm sorry, 9,000, somewhere around those hours or whatever he had at the time, they're going to be pretty damn familiar with uh, how what birds look like in the air. You know, yeah. I'm sure they've seen it before by that point. You had to have. And not only that, but I mean, everybody, you know, growing up around any any area that has any kind of any kind of bird traffic, with uh, especially if they're you know traveling in any kind of formation, you're going to be familiar with what that looks like. Right. It's not very it's not very hard to recognize. You know, even at distance, I think they they move. It's a very specific uh, t- set of series of movements. You know, they they you know you can you can almost see the, the even at distance you can a lot of times make out a little bit of a, a wing flap. You know what I mean? Yeah, and. Um, just to, to put this bird theory to, to bed, this is the most plausible skeptical ex- explanation, the bird theory. Just to put that to bed, Martin Show, the gentleman who wrote that paper that I mentioned earlier, he does a really detailed analysis using trigonometry and the speed. So we know how fast Arnold was going. He was going, I don't know, like 105 miles an hour or something, because that's, that's how fast his airplane cruised at. We know the type of airplane that he had. Mm-hmm. And we know that Arnold... Arnold was very specific about the direction he was flying, the maneuvers he made. He said he turned his airplane to get a better look at him and all this other stuff. We have a really good description of the the perceived flight path that these things were flying. So mm-hmm. if we ignore the fact that we that they flew behind a mountain peak, which this, by the way, this is usually how skeptics, what they do to justify their explanations. They ignore pieces of the the um the witness statements and they just cherry pick the data that fits their explanation. Mm-hmm. But let's go mm-hmm. ahead and give them the benefit of the doubt and say that he was mistaken about flying behind um peaks and we just use his general flight path going from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams. Um Martin Show does a really good job of using trigonometry, the speed of the airplanes, the speed a bird would be flying at, the distance the bird would have to be to be perceived as these objects, um, you know, the angular size and all that stuff. And he calculates based on the top topography, all this other data, that it's absolutely impossible for birds under any circumstance to account for his sighting um, from where he visually saw them going from Mount Adams and Mount Rainier. It's just not possible. Don't take my word for it. Go read this really detailed explanation that he puts up. I'm not a math wizard, and I kind of have to take his word for it a little bit, but his calculations do seem plausible. He draws diagrams with you know, where the birds would be and all this other stuff. It's a really good, uh, really good rundown. And I'm only mentioning that because it just, he pretty much blows this out of water. He puts it to bed. And uh, if you're still clinging onto that, just forget about it because it wasn't birds guys. There's no, not a chance, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. there's, there's some other skeptical explanations. And um, I like to talk about these a little bit just for a laugh because some of them are, (laughs) they're pretty good. So some other ones that were proposed were, was snow blowing off of the mountains balloons, clouds, water droplets on his window, which is stupid because not only did he turn his airplane, he took his glasses off. Mm-hmm. He rolled his air, mm-hmm. aircraft back and forth to, you know, rocked his air cra- airplane to make sure that it wasn't uh, reflections. And he even rolled his window down so that he knew he was looking at them unobstructed. It wasn't reflections guys. Give that one up. That's probably the second most plausible theory that people cling to the the skeptics mm-hmm. um a mirage of distant mountains is another one earth lights ice meteors which is i don't think that's even really like a real thing but that was proposed as a as a skeptical explanation 
huge hailstones, uh, motes in his eye, and layers of hot and cold air. So there's a, a real quick rundown of all the the skeptical explanations, but they're all pretty comical, you know? <laughs> None of them... I mean, I think that, you know, uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus is a better explanation than any of those, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes a lot more sense yeah. at the very least. But so that's pretty much all I have. Uh, what, what's your final thoughts on this, ETA? One of the, the strong beliefs I have about like technology in general that, you know, many people, a lot of people have heard the, the opinion that typically government is, is way far ahead of like the public knowledge of technology, the heights of technology, right? So I don't think it's necessarily out of the realm of possibility from, in my opinion, that the government um, could have had a hold of, of maybe, uh, you know, a craft or two that, that had some kind of a, a propulsion system that could move the way that these, these craft were moving. Um, now the, the thing that kind of interests me as far as like, you know, how the government may have uh, gotten a hold of, of these things is I kind of, uh, I, it's, I, I love this story about, you know, governments finding, you know, uh, ancient, uh, crashed alien aircraft. You know what I mean? I'm not necessarily saying that, that that's more probable or likely or there's more evidence or anything like that, but that's one of my favorite, you know, theories out there about, about government's involvement with that type of technology. You know what I mean? But I don't necessarily think that the government would have, um, a fleet of, uh, nine aircraft that they could competently, you know, fly in formation, you know, because, you know, when you do hear about stories of, of people working for governments, um, Bob Lazar included, you know, it's very, it's very rare where you're here, you hear a story about uh, anybody either being involved or witnessing a, a vehicle being piloted, you know, especially multiple vehicles being piloted, you know, um, by humans, you know, competently and, and with, with those numbers, you know what I mean? So with that being said, um, I think it's more likely possibly uh, alien in origin. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting sighting. And it's hard for me to conclude that it was a man-made airplane. But like you're saying, mm -hmm. you said the government is typically far, far ahead of where we know that they are or where we think they are. And if you if you look back at some historical documents, there's stuff from like the 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, where the documents are still highly redacted. So if this is a technology that we somehow developed and it's still in use today, then they would redact it, even if it's that long ago and we wouldn't know about it potentially. Mm. It's kind of hard yeah. for me to believe that because so much stuff gets leaked over the years, but it's still a plausible explanation that they did develop some kind of propulsion and that they were using it. But based on the aircraft and technology that we know about, I'm pretty confident in saying 100% this was not a man-made craft. Um, it's maybe it's possible, but it's really hard for me to believe that it was something man-made. There were some crafts like nuclear propelled craft that were under development and our government still to this day maintains that we never flew nuclear powered craft, even though there are a handful of cases like potentially the cash Landrum incident that could be explained by some sort of, you know, government nuclear craft. I don't know, mm -hmm. but it's hard for me to say that it was something that people made, that it was man-made terrestrial craft, um, and if if you just look at the way they made top secret test vehicles and stuff like that, usually they'll make a test vehicle and then they'll base a production craft on technology developed in that test vehicle. We've never had anything that was a production craft that we know of that, that could 
do even to this day that could maneuver like this at this altitude. And there certainly weren't any test vehicles. And test vehicles were only made one at a time. And they weren't flown in groups of nine or even some witnesses uh-huh. said they saw 30 or 35 of them. Um, they don't test yeah. these overpopulated tourist areas. They just don't, they would not be testing or flying top secret secret craft over Mount Rainier. It just wouldn't be a thing that they would do. Um, it just, it's a bad government craft or military craft. It's just a really bad fit for this case, in my opinion. Um, the, uh-huh. the bizarre flight characteristics described by many witnesses, uh, they don't make sense for a terrestrial aerodynamic vehicle. The, the passengers, if they were in there with, with flipping around at supersonic speeds, they would be killed instantly by the G forces. Uh, furthermore, yeah. there, like I said before, there were no sonic booms and they didn't appear to have any flight control surfaces like wings or anything like that. Rudders, ailerons, nothing that they could use to steer the aircraft. There's no uh, air intakes reported, no jet engines, no propellers, nothing that could propel these things. Um, and, you know, there's actually no engine noise or anything at all from these things Most is what most people reported. Um, and this kind of makes me wonder if it wasn't some sort of exotic form of propulsion, such as the Alcubierre drive. Um, now, I we talked about this in a previous episode. Actually, we mentioned it several times because it, it's something that comes up over and over again. But what an Alcubierre drive is, is a physicist in the 90s named Alcubierre theorized that um, you could bend space-time around a ship and you could therefore go faster than the speed of light even using this. Um, You wouldn't actually be going faster than the speed of light. The way it would work theoretically is that um, from your perspective, your ship would be at a standstill and space-time would be moving around your ship. And you could kind of use... Just like a... Yeah. Just like Event Horizon. Yeah. The movie. Yeah, sort of. And you could sort of use this to cheat (laughs) physics, but the really cool thing is that the theories work out. Like, this is not breaking our current understanding of physics to do something like this. The only thing holding us back is it would require some sort of exotic particle, like antimatter or something, to power it. Or, um, I forget the exact details, but it would require, like, negative mass or some weird thing like that to actually bend space-time. So, as far as we know... the ability to... As far as we know publicly, we don't have the technology yet, but we do have the theory that it is possible. And if a craft was bending space-time around it, from the craft's perspective, it would be moving in a straight line. But perhaps this could explain the wavering or flipping motion as it moved through, as space-time moved around it, it would make the craft appear to oscillate because it wouldn't be moving through the air. The air and space-time itself would be moving around the craft. So... Some sort of, uh, you know, novel propulsion or some sort of exotic propulsion could explain what the witnesses saw. Also, if there's Mm -hmm. some sort of hidden fourth dimension, these crafts are moving through hidden fourth dimensions and we're only seeing part of the crafts or part of the picture of what's going on. That might also explain Mm. the bizarre flight characteristics that people are seeing. But that one is a little out there. It's, It's not really, I wouldn't call that plausible necessary, but... The thing is, not just this case, but there's a lot of cases where you see what the witnesses describe, and it, it makes me wonder if there's crafts that are moving through a fourth dimension, a fourth spatial dimension that we're not capable of perceiving. Uh-huh. But that's just pure speculation on my part, but um, I think it maybe is another possibility. But to conclude, so aliens. Uh, I think aliens, um, my take on it is I think it's a possibility for this case. Without the hard proof, you know, without them so, so-called so landing on the White House lawn and introducing themselves, we could never mm-hmm. know for Take sure. To your leader. But 
because we don't have any possible explanation for these things that could be here from Earth, I don't think it's that much of a leap to say this was an alien visitation. But without the hard proof, I'm not necessarily saying it was aliens, but I think that that, to me, that seems like the most likely explanation for it. And I guess that's my take on the uh, the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Heck yeah. And I definitely agree with you, like, uh, with, you know, the notion that at the very least, it has to be some kind of exotic propulsion. Yeah. You know, just, just you know, by the way that they're moving. Yeah. Well, I guess that's all I have. You got anything else you, before we finish up here? No, I think, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with, with uh, what we've covered. All right. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. Let us know what you think about the episodes. If you have any questions or comments or topic requests, send them to us. All right. We appreciate you guys listening. And uh, as always, if you guys wouldn't mind doing us a, a solid, always uh, you know like, share, subscribe. Uh, if you if you even want to go a further step there, if you don't mind leaving a good review, that's always appreciated. But it, you know, just listening is good enough. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, really help us out. Thanks a lot, and we'll catch you next time for a topic that we I don't think we've decided on yet.